Hi. Yeah, I know you probably looked at SoundCloud and you saw, oh, whoa, the Very Lutheran Project is uh, uploading in the study on Romans again. Wow, that only took like a century. Well, okay, you got me and I apologize. I'm sorry it's taken so stinking long to get anything done regarding this uh, long series. You know, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's just read the book and comment on it while uh, trying to keep my sanity. <laughs> but when it comes to Romans, you, you have to read it and reread it and take a long time and study beforehand and everything. And that's where it takes a little bit more dedication. And a little bit of news about me is that we are currently, me and uh, some people, some uh, friends of mine, are working on creating an entirely new Lutheran group in the West, uh, like an underground Lutheran church body that uh, for now is going to be called the Catacomb Synod. And that's under development here. And it's going to be, uh, we're going to talk about it more while it comes in and the need for a house church movement in Lutheranism. But let's get into Romans. You see, last week, we, uh, we ended on something of a downer. We ended around uh, Romans 3, verse 20 here, and we found ourselves uh, beat over the head with the law, just bashed over the head. St. Paul making it clear that absolutely none of us can be justified by our own works. None of us can earn our way into heaven, whether Jew or Gentile. None of us can do the right thing. Not by our own power. And now he finally gets to the good news. Finally, he's going to be getting into the gospel aspect of this. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 21. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to read a couple verse uh, previous to that. It says here in verse 19 of Romans 3, Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does that mean? It means, well, you Jews, you knew better, and you have zero excuses. You got nothing. And you Gentiles... Well, you're already under wrath for your sins, because even though you didn't have the law, you're still under wrath. Doesn't matter. You still sinned. If a dog doesn't know that it sinned or that it peed on the carpet, it is still held accountable to that. If a dog bites a kid, I'm still going to want to punch it in the face, <laughs> even if it's just a dumb dog. So we Gentiles here who didn't have the law, who didn't have the oracles of God, were still accountable. But that puts the, uh, the Jewish people in an even worse light, according to St. Paul, as he says. You know, he says, and I fully agree with him, hey, you have zero excuse. You have even less of an excuse because here you are sinning, even though you knew this was wrong. You were brought up in the law. You were brought up in God's Israel, and you knew this. So St. Paul has spent... Most of the first three chapters just absolutely demolishing any claim to righteousness that we might have. And now we get to the good news. So let's go ahead and start reading here in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. But 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now let's hone in on that real quick. We're going to have to reread these because, again, St. Paul writes in ways that St. Peter says are very confusing, right? Let's reread it. But, we understand the word but there, that interjection here being uh, everything I just said, yes, that's bad news, but, but now the, what, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And this already... We get into what you might call the um, coram mundo, coram deo distinction. And we'll get to that in just a second. But first and foremost, what is the law? The law is the righteous requirement of God towards humanity. It is what God expects of you. This is how you're supposed to act, what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to think, how you are supposed to be. When Jesus tells people, therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he means it. That's what the law requires of you, to be a perfect human specimen. And the law teaches you exactly what you're supposed to do in order to earn that before God, in order to be that person. We can't do it. So now the question might be from the Roman church, well, how do I be righteous then? How can anybody be righteous? And so Paul puts the but right there. Now it is time to encourage people. Remember, if you ever wonder why Lutherans are so obsessed with the law-gospel distinction and why we preach law and gospel sermons, well, Paul did it first. Just saying. And I'm going to do what Paul does because he says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. But I digress. So the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been shown apart from the law. What do we mean by that? Meaning God's righteousness, his perfection, his goodness is revealed outside of dot all your I's, cross all your T's, and be a good boy. Here now, we have a different way that God shows who he is and how he is perfect. And not only that, it is God's righteousness, but it is also now a way for you to be righteous. Because if this is the way that God shows his righteousness, this means there is a new way to access that, to where God himself declares you, O believer, to be righteous. So that's what he says. Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. There's the way that everybody figured and everybody knew and everybody had revealed to them was the way to be a good and righteous person. But now there is a difference. Now there is a different way to it that apparently is excruciatingly necessary because Paul just spent three chapters telling us that we can't do it the first way. And he says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning this isn't 100% new. Uh, I remember we had a, there's a recording on the Very Lutheran Project on the SoundCloud, uh, St. Paul versus the buttholes, where some people believe that St. Paul was 
an innovator. He made stuff up. He pulled stuff out of his butt, and uh, therefore, <laughs> you can just disregard everything he said. But St. Paul isn't that. He doesn't ever really say anything new, theologically speaking. And when he says, the law and the prophets bear witness to it, he is saying that this righteousness from God, this righteousness of God that we cannot attain, is something that everybody knew about. Kind of. Something that everybody desired. And this comes into prophecy. This comes into Isaiah 53, right? He was pierced for our transgressions. This comes into uh, Genesis 3.15. Who is it? Who is this seed of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent for us? And how am I going to, how am I going to put my faith in him? And then all the prophets talk about the Messiah. And Habakkuk says, the just shall live by faith. We all hear about this. And Abraham believed in God and counted it towards him as righteousness. We hear all these things. And if you put yourself in a first century context with zero you know, accessibility to the New Testament, it's going to be really hard to see that. At the time, everybody was just expecting the Messiah to do stuff and to restore the kingdom as it needed to be. But St. Paul here is saying, yes, the law and the prophets talked about it. So we got to ask ourselves, how? In what way? Because during the first century, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, shows up and nobody recognizes him for who he is. So how does this work? Well, let's, let's first start with the law. How does the law bear witness to the righteousness of God that is manifest apart from itself? Well, let's look at the Ten Commandments. Each one of the Ten Commandments tells you something about God. And yes, first and foremost, the, the law, it, it is a curb against evil, yes. And yes, it is a mirror that judges you and, well, always tells you that you fall short. You suck. But... With this, there is a modicum of hope that comes from the Ten Commandments by teaching you about God. So, what's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Okay, what does that tell me about God? One, he wants you worshiping and trusting in him and loving him. There is only one God. Only one. And, if God expects you to be faithful... It is because he is faithful first. He wants you to be like him. You are made in his image, right? So if you're made in the image of God, you are expected to be like God in the sense that you reflect his divine qualities. And if God is going to tell you to be faithful, it is because he is faithful. Second commandment, you shall not take God's name in vain. And what does that tell us about God? God's name is holy. He does not expect you to, and does not want you to take his name in vain through magic or false teaching. God is the capital T truth. But if God wants a good name to be known, my question is, does he want to be known as the God that created a bunch of people that in futility are damned because of their sins? Of course not. And this righteous God that we know is perfect and that we know is faithful, well, is he going to leave you hanging? I hope not. 
Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God commands us to rest. And I understand in the New Testament context that is different than, uh, than the Old Testament context. It's not a single day of the week, but we are to live in Christ, our holy and divine rest. But if God rests and he commands you to rest, because it does say, you know, on the seventh day of creation, God rested. Well, that means God values that. But the law makes so many demands of us that is it, is it really possible for the law to give you a day where there's no demands on you? Well, that tells me that maybe God values a kind of rest that the law cannot provide. Hmm. Okay. Fourth commandment. You shall honor your father and your mother, that it may go well with you in the land you are going in to possess. What does that tell me about God? One, that he wants me to see him as my ultimate heavenly father. God the Father wants you to see him as the loving father out there. And Jesus points us to this in the Gospels when he says, which of you having children, if your child asks for um, you know, some food that you give him a scorpion instead or give him a rock? And now of you, if you're evil, if you don't do that kind of messed up stuff to your kid, why would God do that to you? The fourth commandment teaches us that. And you can go through every single one of the Ten Commandments and understand this is who God is, who he says he is. Fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Well, God values life. And it might not seem that way because so many people die in their sins and God kills so many people. But he doesn't really like doing that. It's what uh, Martin Luther calls the alien work of God. Yes, he does it because that is justice, but he doesn't find pleasure in it. He, doesn't, he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked because God values life. The fifth commandment, you shall not kill, teaches us that. Sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. God values the relationships and the institution of marriage that he created. And in addition to that, because he is telling you to be faithful to your spouse, to your wife, he too is going to be faithful to his believers, to provide for them, to care for them, to be the loving husband of our souls. Well, okay, you look at that and you're going, okay, well, if I'm so sold under sin, is it consistent with God's character to leave me hanging by the law? Because the law tells me I'm a failure. But the law is also telling me something about God that says it can't just end with me being a damned failure, can it? We go on to the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Absolutely, God loves property rights. We learn that about him this way. And he wants us to be generous, but that means that God is generous. And God values his property, what is his, the entire universe. And if God loves his creation, his people, is he going to allow the devil to just steal them away? Hmm. Of course not. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Again, that is about your neighbor's good reputation. That is about the truth. That is about not lying and trying to destroy your neighbor. Well, that's because God loves your neighbor. <laughs> God loves you. He also loves your neighbor, even if you don't like the guy. But is he going to leave your neighbor hanging and die? Absolutely not. 
you shall not covet your neighbor's house, the ninth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, cattle, oxen, donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. These two commandments, don't covet and no really don't covet, don't covet your neighbor's property or his house and don't covet your neighbor's life, his animals, his people, what he does, who he gets to be, means that God values not only giving blessing, but also protecting blessing. He values the kind of good life that we can have when we are not covetous, when we are not jealous, when we are not full of envy and striving and uh, trying to find backhanded ways to get things from our neighbor. But that means, again, God values our neighbor just as much as he values us. And in addition to this, God is, well, if one of the ways that you don't covet is by cherishing what you have. You, you end up taking your things for granted if you are a covetous person. And so one of the mirror commandments of the ninth and 10th commandments is to cherish the life and the property that you have and the people that you have to give adequate care for them and to love them. And well, if you belong to God, isn't he going to do that for you? So when St. Paul here in Romans 3 says the law and the prophets bear witness to this righteousness of God that is manifested apart from the law, even the Ten Commandments, all of Christian morality wrapped up in one beautiful little package here, tells us that God isn't done with you just because you are a sinner. In the prophets, we understand, I mean, there's so many prophecies about Jesus Christ that we can, I could hardly touch on it here. So we understand the law bears witness to this righteousness, but also the prophets do as well. I mean, everything about Christ in the Old Testament is a witness to this righteousness apart from the law. But remember, in the old school, first century way of uh, putting the scriptures together, it, there's even more than just prophecies about Jesus Christ regarding this righteousness. A good example of this, and it's almost typological, is King David. When King David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he murders Uriah the Hittite, he, by all means, according to the law, should have died. He should have been executed. No one is above the law, not even the king, and he deserved death. And he was absolutely still punished, but God spared him. In his sovereignty, God decided to spare King David the punishment that he deserved because David almost immediately entrusted himself to the Lord and to his mercy. This is something in, that we see in 2 Samuel that paints a picture of this righteousness apart from the law because the law said David deserved to die. And for some reason, God says, no, you're not going to die. And what is this righteousness that is apart from the law? In verse 22, it says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is where we get all the goofy evangelical things. <laughs> the, the Jesus-colored glasses that God the Father wears when he looks at you, somebody who trusts in Jesus. 
I mean, it's goofy, but it's true. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, all those sins that you committed do not count against you. God looks at you and on behalf of his son, on behalf of the suffering and death of his son, Jesus Christ, the perfect Paschal lamb, he looks at you and says, this man or this woman is righteous before me. And I will spare him my wrath. I will spare her my wrath the same way I did for King David who trusted in me in spite of his sins. That's righteousness by faith. Justification by faith. Remember, justification is to declare someone righteous. And God does that because you believe in Jesus. Now we get to verse 23, you know, at the end of verse 22, St. Paul says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Um, typically this is used when a Baptist is trying to, um, you know, trying to witness to his buddy. And he says, this verse proves that all are under sin. Well, yes, but that's not the, that's not the point that St. Paul is making here. Remember, he has been for two chapters now talking about the differences between Jews and Gentiles. In, in bringing up the Jews and the Gentiles, and when he says there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that means that every human being now, Jewish or Gentile, has access to this righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. All who believe. I personally think that's just a little bit of a nod there. But um, the Apology of the Oxford Confession says, Scripture shouts everywhere that we are far away from perfection that the law requires. And yeah, St. Paul, in his theme of both Jews and Gentiles, every human being on the planet being sold under sin, that is true. But the inverse is also true that all sinners worldwide do have access to God's righteousness manifested apart from the law by faith in Jesus Christ. Obviously, this is because, and we'll keep reading here, and starting in verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, before we continue on, when we ask, why does, why does it depend on faith in Jesus? Can't I just go to God directly for mercy? Well, maybe, maybe that was the case in the Old Testament when the name Jesus Christ, son of the living God, wasn't on everybody's lips. You had to do something to trust in God's mercy, and the sacrifices pointed you to Jesus Christ. But now we understand and we see through the gospel that Jesus paid that price for your sins. He took that punishment that you cannot on the cross. The word propitiation here in verse 25, um, it's hilasterion in the Greek. Uh, the Ark of the Covenant's cover, this is the commentary here from the Lutheran Study Bible, puts it in better words than I can. Uh, Greek hilasterion in the LXX, the Ark of the Covenant's cover, where the high priest sprinkled the blood of the sacrifices, meaning the propitiation covered the Ark of the Covenant. Christ, his righteousness covers the sinner because he is the sacrifice for 
sin. Jesus paid it all. He really did. The hymn is correct. So, a propitiation also satisfies the wrath of a god. In the, in the Greek term and in the Greek sense of it. God is angry. This sacrifice is made for him and he is no longer angry. How do you access that sacrifice made for you? By faith. So St. Paul says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We receive the forgiveness of our sins by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is, a pistis, faith is not just intellectual head knowledge. This is saying, I belong to you. I cannot do this on my own. I entrust myself to you. It's deeper than just head knowledge, as St. James, of course, would bring up. But we continue on. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Um, now, that doesn't mean God just went willy-nilly and forgot about it. But with examples like King David, you have people who went directly to God for forgiveness without understanding the gospel, like King David. Though King David is definitely a prophet and understands a lot more of the gospel than people in his age did, it's not like God ignored it. It's just that there was a, there was a lot more of a fuzziness there. But more important than that is the question of modern theologians and people who reject what's called penal substitutionary atonement, claiming that while St. Paul is either forwarding child abuse or you need to mutilate this text in order to uh, take it away from that connotation. So, question. Is the gospel divine child abuse? A heavenly father taking his holy, innocent, precious son and beating him to death to satisfy his wrath on behalf of other people. Well, yes and no. The thing that people forget is that Jesus is God. Jesus, being God, knows just as much as the Father, who is God, and the Holy Spirit, who is God, that this needs to happen if anybody's going to be saved. There is no other way that this can happen. And if there is another way, it's not the way that God wants it to go. So, Jesus Christ willingly incarnated in the Virgin Mary. He willingly became man to die for us. He willingly went to the cross and suffered the penalty for our sins. Jesus was not just nailed to a cross. This was not a standard crucifixion. If you were nailed to a cross and you died... Maybe a few hours, maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks, depending on your personal constitution. Well, that's very painful and it sucks and then you die. Jesus was tortured before his crucifixion. Facing the wrath of the Romans. Facing the wrath of the Jews by experiencing their rejection, their false witness, their malicious wickedness. Jesus went through that. But even worse than that, and even worse than being nailed to a cross, even worse than having the cat of nine tails rip most of the flesh from his back, Jesus Christ suffered the infinite wrath of the Father. And he decided to suffer it because he loves you. 
Now, the question that somebody might have is, doesn't this mean that the Trinity has a conflict within the Trinity? No, because this is by common understanding of both the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is there. The, the whole Trinity understood that this needed to happen. So when St. Paul says in the book of Colossians, it says in verse 13 of chapter 2, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, means that Jesus paid for those sins. Jesus died for those sins. Period. End of story. And he went through extreme suffering for this as the divine propitiation for the wrath of the Father. All of our failures. Now, it is to save us that whosoever believes may be saved. You know, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. We all understand this. But there's another reason that St. Paul puts forward in here. He says it in verse 25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So during the time of the law and prophets, the Old Testament period, before Christ's ministry, his suffering, death, burial, and resurrection, because people did not have the data to understand, yes, this is God's righteousness apart from the works of the law. Before then, well, okay, God did pass over former sins and he delayed the punishment because he wants to show his righteousness. What righteousness? Which righteousness? The, the Reformed approach might say, well, this is God showing off his glory, but I honestly think this is more about the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law. St. Paul specifies in verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The righteousness that he is showing here in verse five, verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness. It is showing the righteousness apart from the works of the law so that we can be saved. And God can still say, yes, I am just. This is my holy law, and it is pure, holy, and good. But I am also justifying those who have faith in my holy son, Jesus Christ. Like, trust me, guys, God doesn't need the ego trip. He is showing this righteousness so that you can be saved, and also the righteous requirements of the law are met. So, St. Paul then starts concluding this. But before we get to that, a little bit about this idea here that there is a, a conflict between God's justice and his mercy. Some people might say, and some atheists claim this in their debates with us, nasty, dirty, faith-head theists, that there is too much of a disconnect between God's justice and his mercy. That these, his love and his wrath are irreconcilable. Well, 
Don't you think God knows about that possibility, dum-dums? <laughs> That's my response to the atheists. Yes, God understands that there is that risk. There is that issue of having infinite righteousness and infinite justice that collides with infinite love and mercy. So he reconciled the two by sending his son to die on the cross. Case closed. You're done. You're good. <laughs> and honestly, whenever an atheist comes up to you and asks, Well, which God? If I'm going to be a theist, I could be a Muslim. I could be a um, Advaitic Hindu. I could be, um, what about a Jew? And none of these guys really understand, like, look, you're the one that brought up to me that God's justice and his love are at odds with each other. But none of those religions solve that problem. None of them present how God reconciles these things. And in the gospel, he does. So Christianity is the only option here for the theists. If they want a consistent God who actually does answer that question for us. But I digress. So St. Paul concludes here in this chapter, writing, starting in verse 27, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Excuse me. So, real quick, your boasting is excluded. Why? Well, because you don't deserve salvation. All of us are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, period. End of story. Now, there's still, is there still boasting? Well, yes, our boast is in Jesus Christ, not in ourselves. We don't say, look at how good I have done here to earn such righteousness before God. We say, look at how wonderful Jesus is to have paid the price for my sins so that God declares me righteous. So, it's by the law of faith that we do have any boasting at all. And he says, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And that's all of them. I've said this before and I addressed it at length last recording here in part five, but it bears repeating. If you are justified by faith plus works, that just means you are justified by works. Because if any of this depends on you, then your failure to do good works makes that faith that you had null and void. Period. And if that's the case, then faith meant nothing to the equation here. It was faith plus works, but faith didn't do anything because, well, it doesn't even account for brownie points if you screw up when it comes to the whole doing good works thing. So it is either, it's not faith plus works. It is either you are justified by faith or you are justified by works. The Bible does not let you try to have it both ways. You are justified by faith alone. And if somebody says we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, if somebody tries to say that this, oh, well, that means the ceremonial law. That means, you know, a shellfish mixed fiber, um, not having a cheeseburger, those kinds of laws, right? You understand that's horse hockey because it's either the whole law or it is not. And the whole law includes the Ten Commandments, which includes stealing, which St. Paul brings up, meaning any failure of the law, any failure that you have to live up to the law counts against you. 
If you are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, that means all of them, not just the some parts that you can say, ha well, I don't have to stay away from the bacon plate anymore, but I still have to never murder and never speak falsely of somebody and bear false witness in order for me to get to heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't. It's either the whole law or none of it. And, well, you're justified by faith apart from all of it. And now St. Paul also says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So St. Paul brings up again here that now it, God is the God of everybody. He was previously too, but that was not clear. His righteousness manifested apart from the works of the law was not clear to people yet. It is in the gospel that we see this. So St. Paul says, well, you're justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And that means that God is not just the God of the Jews. They do not have any special claim to, well, being a chosen people. Instead, well, now this is God revealing and emphasizing that he is the God of everybody. He wants everybody to worship him. Now it says, since God is one... Who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? He says now, because it's apart from the law, circumcision, physical circumcision, does not matter. We'll get into baptism later, I promise, as we go through this whole series. Um, but you're no longer considered special by worshiping God as a circumcised human being. Now, St. Paul, again, he in befores in verse 31, and this is where we're going to finish up. He says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What does that mean? Well, again, there's the antinomian assertion that in uh, Romans 3, he says in verse 8, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, you know, he was charged with being this antinomian that hated the law and told you, you know, you could just let your freak flag fly. That's not the case. You really got to think when it comes to the third use of the law as our guide and the new obedience to the law, the new motivation for it. If before Christ I cannot fulfill the law, then I do a disservice to the law. In my unholiness, in my sin, in my bad habits of screwing up every chance I get, if I'm always screwing up, then I do a disservice to the law. I cannot uphold the law no matter how hard I try. But if in the gospel I recognize that Jesus paid for my sins, well, now I have a new motivation to uphold the law. Now I have a new reason to obey those Ten Commandments. Now I have, I can even trust this God that I know who cares for me to help me obey the Ten Commandments. Now, I understand my, new, my old Adam is still in me and I'm still a sinner, but now there's this, the process of sanctification. Christians uphold the law more than any branch who denies that Jesus died for us, more than anybody who denies that justification is through faith in Christ, because if you 
if you don't recognize that Jesus died for your sins, if you don't recognize the fact that he paid the whole demands of the law, he did all of it, then you really don't have much of a reason to try. You just have wrath. But now, out of gratitude, I have every reason to uphold the law instead of trying to overthrow it and say, now I can just sin all willy-nilly and uh, find myself in hell later. So, that's it for today. We're starting on the good news. And my goodness, it took us uh, over 40 minutes to just get through 10 verses. And trust me, we're going to be coming back. We're going to be circling back. We're going to be looking at all sorts of different things here. And I can't wait. But until then, the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.